Strangers merch is coming. Oh my God, I'm so excited. We are doing a super limited spring merch store starting April 21st. The store will only be open with these special designs for two weeks. Grab your t-shirts, mugs, pencil cases, hats, and more, all with the designs from our design contest winners. Keep your eyes on our socials and on the website strangeandunexplainedpod.com for the merch store button. And don't miss your chance to grab your strange merch to show everyone you're the coolest kid on your block. crime scene is like a memory, fragile and easily contaminated. Get too many people weighing in or trampling through, and suddenly not everything is as clear as it might have once been. The more time that passes, the murkier things get. Memories morph and change. Evidence degrades. Important details are forgotten. People die. If you want to remember something important, you need to take care and be thorough. Write it all down as soon after the events as possible, with as much detail as you can muster. And if you want to solve a murder, you need to take care and be thorough. Noting every detail, searching every inch of the crime scene, marking down anything anyone there might say. Amidst the thousands of clues in a family home, where a girl was found dead in her basement in 1996, the truth is a needle in a haystack. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who loves true crime, but until now, I have pretty much managed to steer clear of the most sensational cases. While the world cannot seem to get enough of the Scott Petersons, Casey Anthonys, and Elizabeth Smarts, for me, once Nancy Grace is screaming about it on her show, I'm out. My deep mistrust of commercial news outlets makes it hard for me to believe anything they're reporting when it comes to sensationalized crime, especially since I know they're really just trying to sell me rheumatoid arthritis medicine or fascist pillows. That said, I don't live in a cave, so I'm aware of these cases. I just rarely have an opinion unless the proof is so irrefutable that there's no two ways around it. But so many of you strangers have asked for this case, and because I am a kind and generous person, I will give you what you want. And today, that is the story of the tragic murder of JonBenet Ramsey. A quick note before we begin. Obviously, we're dealing with the assault and death of a young child, so please take care. Also, while this episode and the next were very thoroughly researched, I had to leave out some minor details for time. But all the most prurient things are here, and we're going to be moving pretty quick because in covering this story, there is a lot. So, in the immortal words of Mr. Arnold in Jurassic Park, Hold on to your butts. JonBenet Patricia Ramsey was born to John and Patricia Patsy Ramsey on August 6th, 1990 in Atlanta, Georgia. For some reason, the Ramsey's first child, a son named Burke, who was born three and a half years earlier, wasn't named after either parent, but his little sister got both her parents' names? Ouch. About a year after Jean Benet was born, the Ramseys moved to Boulder, Colorado, where John's successful computer equipment manufacturing company merged with two other companies and became a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin. 
The Ramseys were not hurting financially. Their new home in Boulder was worth an estimated $1 million, nearly $2.3 million in today money. Which I know is considered chump change to rich people these days, but it's honestly nothing to sneeze at. And if I had that kind of money, I would disappear with my family and you would never see any of us ever again. Their house in Boulder was ostentatious and showy and gave some the impression that the Ramses were eager to show off how wealthy they were. That said, according to a People magazine profile about the family from 1997, quote, Patsy, who married John in 1980 after he was divorced from his first wife, Lucinda, took obvious pleasure in her role as a luminary on the social scene in Boulder, donating time and money to a host of charities. Yet she impressed many who met her as a down-to-earth woman free of snobbery or vanity, end quote. The Ramseys were known to host lavish parties at their home, which some later felt might have contributed to the family's tragedy. One neighbor told People magazine, There were so many people who had access to the house. Nannies, cleaners, gardeners, caterers. Before all that, as a young woman, Patsy Ramsey studied at WVU's School of Journalism, where she graduated magna cum laude in 1979. And she also competed in beauty pageants, something she had done from an early age. The year before she graduated college, Patsy competed as Miss West Virginia in the Miss America pageant. And if you don't think I scoured the internet trying to find her performance, you don't know me, Bob. Then again, I'm not always the best scourer, so if you find it, please share. And please don't add, um, do research much? The research packet for this episode was 34 pages. Anyway... In fact, pageantry ran in Patsy's family. Her sister had also competed in pageants, including Miss America. So, following in her mother's footsteps, by the time she was four years old, Jean Benet was already winning pageants. Honestly, Jean Benet's pageant performances, just like every other pageant performance of a tiny baby child, are pretty wooden and lack any kind of soul. I'm not trying to disparage her. It's just, I have never seen a child give an impassioned pageant performance. I have never watched a child compete in a pageant and been like, wow, you can really tell her heart is in this. Every kid looks exactly the same dead eyes behind which they're just remembering choreography. Obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to judging pageants, because by the time she was six, Jean Benet had won Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Charlevoix, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, America's Royale Miss, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. But whatever you do, don't take your kid to a drag show. Who knew I would be a terrible children's beauty pageant judge? The answer to that question is literally anyone who has ever met me or listened to a single episode of this podcast. But actually, I do kind of know what I'm talking about because I was a child actor and I met and worked with plenty of kids who were clearly only doing it because their parents had mama rosed them into the business. Trust me, you can tell the difference between a kid who's doing something they love and a kid who's doing something they've been told to do. But Patsy insisted that Jean Benet asked to enter the pageant world after seeing her mother compete. I suppose we should all be grateful her mother hadn't been a boxer. 
Look, just because your kid says they want to do something doesn't mean they have to do it. My son says he wants to move to South Korea to join a boy band all the time. He also says he only wants to eat wasabi for dinner. Obviously, we aren't doing that. I am unapologetically judgy about parents who push their children into any specific extracurricular activities. And as for beauty pageants, nope, not today, Bob. And you will not be able to convince me that back in the 90s, people didn't understand the dangers of it like they do today. Come on. I don't care what century it is, you can't convince me that a six-year-old girl wearing a crop top and more makeup than a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race is ever appropriate. And don't talk to me about slut-shaming. We're talking about children here. There are horrible people out in the world who will see a little girl in a crop top and get the wrong idea. Also, if a seven-year-old boy doesn't have to wear a crop top in pageants, why should a seven-year-old girl? Also, I just don't believe that Jean Bonnet came to pageantry of her own desire. Just take photographer Judith Phillips recalling a conversation she had with Jean Bonnet's grandmother, Nadra, in which Phillips asked, What happens if Jean Bonnet wakes up and says, Nope, I'm not going to be in a pageant tonight? And Nadra replied, We say, You will do it. She was six years old. Like, what? Why? Another friend of the family claimed that Nadra would say that Jean Bonnet was her Miss America, as in, my two daughters failed, but this one? This one's gonna win. Gross. Rant over, for now. Okay, so now to the infamous day when Jean Bonnet did become famous, but sadly, not for winning any pageants. On Christmas Day of 1996, the Ramses went to a Christmas party at a friend's house and got home around 10 p.m. Jean Benet was already asleep when they got home, so her parents brought her up to bed and tucked her in. At about 5.30 the next morning, Patsy said she went downstairs to make coffee, which is just too early, girl. Like, it's Christmas break. You don't have a job. Why are you waking up at 5.30 in the morning? Why would anybody ever wake up at 5.30 in the morning unless they had to get to work? Be kind to yourself, people. There's no need for these kinds of shenanigans. Anyway. On her way downstairs, Patsy found something strange. What Patsy found at the bottom of the stairs was a three-page, elegantly composed, handwritten note penned on her own stationery, addressed to Mr. Ramsey. It read, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attaché to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. 
If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to rearrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scammed for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned, we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. Now, don't you think if you found a note like this in your home, the absolute first thing you would do is figure out how to literally teleport yourself to the nearest bank branch? Especially considering they promised an early release if he got the money early. Unless he had that kind of cash sitting around at home. If I had read that note, I would have been at the bank withdrawing the money before I was done reading it. Of course, the bank tellers would just be laughing at me because there's no universe in which I have that kind of money in the bank. But John had that kind of money. In fact, he had just received $118,000 as a bonus. Weird coincidence, right? Who could have possibly known that? The Ramses and maybe a handful of people at John's company? The author of the note warns them not to contact law enforcement, but Patsy called the police before even finishing reading the note. Of course, the note was three pages, and in her defense, who would read a whole three-page ransom note before panicking and calling the police? No one. Also, who would write a three-page ransom note? Also, pretty much no one. It is extremely unusual that the note was so long. It suggests that whoever wrote it believed they had plenty of time. Most kidnappers don't have plenty of time. Also, it was written on Patsy's own stationery, suggesting that not only did this person have time to write the note, but they had time to go looking for the stationery on which to write it. It bears mentioning here that a 1997 Vanity Fair piece claimed, quote, according to police reports, Patsy had given two accounts of the morning's events. Mrs. Ramsey told me that she'd gone into Jean Benet's room at about 5.45 to wake her up, Officer French wrote. Finding the room empty, she went down the spiral back stairs where she discovered the note. Later, she said she found the note on the spiral back stairs when she went down to make coffee and then ran to Jean Benet's room. End quote. 
Whichever version of the story is true, and God knows people have wonky memories in the face of extreme trauma, Patsy called the police once she read the note and discovered her daughter was not asleep in her bed. Just before 6 a.m., Officer Richard French arrived at the Ramsey home to find a distraught and weeping Patsy and an oddly calm John. Vanity Fair described the scene this way, quote, While John Ramsey, cool and collected, explained the sequence of events to him, Patsy Ramsey sat in an overstuffed chair in the sunroom, sobbing. Something seemed odd to French, and he later would recall how the grieving mother's eyes stayed riveted on him. He remembered her gaze and her awkward attempt to conceal it, peering at him through splayed fingers held over her eyes, end quote. Apparently, after reading the note, Officer French conducted a quick search of the house, but for some remarkably stupid reason, stopped short, according to Newsweek magazine. Officer French, quote, came to a door secured with a wooden latch. He paused for a moment in front of the door, but walked away. French says he didn't open the door to the basement room because he was looking for exits the kidnapper might have used. He noticed the latch was on the wrong side for a door leading out of the house, so he kept moving, end quote. I mean, no comment. By 6.20 a.m., in addition to several more uniformed officers, friends and neighbors of the Ramseys were in the Ramsey home, including Fleet White, actual name, and his wife, John and Barbara Fernie, and later the Ramsey's minister, Father Roll Hoverstock. Detective Linda Arndt arrived a little after 8 a.m. and was joined later by her supervisor, Detective Sergeant Larry Mason. That is a lot of people at a crime scene, you know? Like, a lot. Like, just too many. Initially, and unsurprisingly given the note, law enforcement assumed Patsy and John Ramsey were the victims of a kidnapping plot involving their beauty pageant queen's six-year-old daughter. They called in two victims' advocates to comfort them, and some officers later described Detective Arndt as having bonded with Patsy Ramsey, which they believe may have led Arndt to make some very critical errors in the beginning stages of the investigation. Whether or not Detective Arndt was becoming chummy with Patsy Ramsey, she later noted that after 10 a.m., when the phone call from the kidnappers was to have come, neither Ramsey acknowledged it. By 1 p.m., with no phone call having come in, Detective Arndt decided that a thorough search of the house was in order. You think? Hours had gone by, and detectives had not thoroughly searched the house yet. Jesus Christ. Arndt later claimed that she had barely gotten the order to search the house out before John Ramsey ran down to the basement. Have you ever heard of police letting civilians do a search of a crime scene? John's friend, Fleet White, again, actual name, told Vanity Fair that once down in the basement, he pointed out a small broken window to John, to which John replied, yeah, I broke it last summer. Now, for the seven millionth time, I will say that people act weird when they're in the middle of experiencing trauma, but one would think that upon seeing a broken window in your home from which your tiny child is missing and has presumably been kidnapped, a broken window would at least elicit an, oh my God, why didn't I fix that window? And, you know, calling up the police to let them know. 
Not just a, oh yeah, no biggie, I broke that window in my home through which a monster may have climbed in and stolen my child, whatevs. I'm paraphrasing. According to Fleet White, John then headed straight for the door with the latch on it that Officer French failed to enter earlier. Apparently, this was a huge and sprawling basement. I picture it similar to the basement from Silence of the Lambs. Just rooms and rooms and rooms and probably a decaying body in a bathtub somewhere. So I guess it struck Fleet as odd that John went directly for that door. And there, behind that door, as Vanity Fair described it, quote, lying on the cement floor was a lifeless Jean Benet, dressed in a white knit shirt and long underwear. There was duct tape over her mouth. A garrote made of white cord and a broken artist's paintbrush handle was around her throat, and there was cord around her right wrist. The body was covered with a white blanket from her bed. Nearby was her red pageant nightgown, described by a relative as her favorite possession, end quote. Later, John Ramsey would tell Barbara Walters, I knew instantly what I found. I found my daughter. She was lying on a white blanket. The blanket was wrapped around her. Her hands were tied above her head. She had tape over her mouth. I immediately knelt down over her, felt her cheek, took the tape off, immediately off her mouth. I tried to untie the, uh, the, the cord that was around her arms, and I, I couldn't get the knot untied. John then scooped little Jean Benet up in his arms and carried her upstairs, quote, holding her with both hands around her at the waist the way you would hold a doll, end quote, according to the investigator's report, which seems like an odd way to hold your own child. Then again, it's probable that rigor mortis had set in and he couldn't really hold her any other way. Dear God. John laid his daughter's lifeless body on the floor in the living room. According to an unnamed source who was supposedly there at the time, What was interesting was when Ramsey brought the body upstairs, he never cried. But when he laid her down, he started to moan while peering around to see who was looking at him. Patsy was supposedly grown crying too. So now we have two grown adults who were peering through their fingers while they cried, supposedly to watch everyone else around them? Okay. Detective Arndt confirmed that Jean Benet was dead and then was, for some reason, instantly suspicious of John Ramsey. She later was quoted by ABC News saying, As we looked at each other, I remember, and I wore a shoulder holster, tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting that I've got 18 bullets. I didn't know if we'd all be alive when people showed up. I mean... Far be it from me to call other people out for being hyperbolic or dramatic, but this is a little over the top. She'd been sitting in the guy's house for hours. Why would he suddenly kill her in front of a dozen witnesses? If he was worried about her suspecting him or something, why would he bring his daughter's body upstairs in the first place? I'm sure it was a very stressful situation and all, but... It wasn't about to become some shootout in the guy's living room. 
Detective Arndt is not, so far, inspiring a lot of confidence in the investigative task force known as the Colorado Police Department. While Detective Arndt was worried about dying at the hands of John Ramsey, Patsy allegedly fell onto her dead daughter's body and cried out, Jesus, you raised Lazarus from the dead. Please raise my baby. Yet again, this feels a bit dramatic. Arndt apparently thought it would be more appropriate for the priest who was still there to lead the group in a more traditional, low-key prayer. The group bowed their heads as Father Hoverstock led them in the Lord's Prayer around Jean Benet's body. Just one year before the murder of Jean Benet Ramsey, the world had become obsessed with the O.J. Simpson murder trial. As if the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman weren't tragic enough, the public's apparent insatiable thirst for coverage of the whole thing, from the Ford Bronco chase to the gavel-to-gavel coverage of the trial, to the weeks of analysis after O.J. was acquitted, ushered in a new era of the 24-hour news channel. Both Fox News and MSN launched in 1996, putting shiny bows on the worst of humanity and airing footage all day and night. But while O.J. Simpson was a huge celebrity, Jean Benet was just an unknown little girl from Colorado. That didn't seem to matter to the public, though. All the footage and photographs of Jean Benet in heavy makeup and elaborate costumes fueled the media's fascination with the case, and the 24-hour news outlets learned that they could rake in the dough from any murder case as long as they found a splashy angle. Also, I suppose I really shouldn't complain, because here I am making my living off of these cases as well. So, in some ways, I should be grateful to Fox News? Excuse me for a moment. I need to go have a complete emotional collapse. Thank you. With practically everyone in America glued to the coverage, including experts quick to point out that the majority of child murders are committed by their own family, it didn't take long for John and Patsy Ramsey to become everyone's favorite suspects in the case. FBI veteran Greg McCrary, who wasn't actually involved in the Jean Benet case, told Vanity Fair, On a ratio of 12 to 1, child murders are committed by parents or a family member. In this case, you also have an elaborate staging, the ransom note, the placement of the child's body. And I have never in my career seen or heard about a staging where it was not a family murder or someone very close to the family. Just the note alone told me the killer was in the family or close to it. Former FBI agent Brad Garrett, who also wasn't actually involved in the case, told 2020 the same thing. Garrett's theory was that the Ramseys had harmed Jean Benet, panicked, and then made it look like she was kidnapped by writing the ransom note. Why else, he asked, would the note be written on Patsy's own stationery? Adding to everyone's growing suspicion of John and Patsy Ramsey was the fact that they hired lawyers pretty quick. Nowadays, parents of a murdered or missing child know they're going to be suspects, and if they can afford one, will almost always hire a lawyer. It's actually the smartest thing you can do, I think. But back in 1996-97, people were like, why would you hire a lawyer if you're innocent? To which I would imagine the Ramseys would have replied, 
because we're not stupid? Oddly, though, John and Patsy hired two sets of lawyers, one set for each of them. John's being one of the most powerful and politically influential firms in Colorado, as well as a media consultant, publicist, private investigators, two handwriting analysts, and a third lawyer in Atlanta for John's first wife. Look, I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say that some people are just super litigious, especially people with lots of money. So I suppose surrounding yourself with this veritable fortress of legal protection is not automatically suspicious. What does seem pretty fishy, though, was that as instructed by their counsel, the Ramseys clammed up on December 28th, just two days after their daughter was murdered and seemingly refused to cooperate any further with the investigation. John Ramsey disputes this claim, though, and told Barbara Walters they'd asked the police to come to them rather than going into the police station because Patsy was so sick with grief she couldn't get out of bed. He said... We were perfectly willing and anxious to speak with the police to find the killer. We had a higher priority at that point, and that was to bury our daughter. Less than a week after her murder, the Ramseys buried Jean Benet on December 31st in their hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. They also gave an interview to CNN the very next day, but for some reason, despite being perfectly willing and anxious to speak with police, a whole four months went by before they finally did. Listen, I'm no huge fan of police in general, but if my kid was murdered, you bet your ass I'd be camped out at the police station, willing to do anything and everything to find who did it. Then again, the Ramseys had a right to not exactly trust the police involved in this case. Investigative journalist Diane Diamond told ABC News... The police did a terrible, terrible job securing that scene. And if you don't secure the scene, you don't get good evidence. People were streaming through that house. They were in the kitchen. They were in the living room. There were some friends of Patsy's that were helping her wipe up the kitchen. There could have been fingerprints there. Of course, John also picking his daughter's body up and bringing it upstairs potentially contaminated a lot of useful evidence, but I'm not going to fault a parent for picking up their dead child's body. Lord only knows what I would do in a situation like this. Despite whatever evidence might have gotten lost in the parade of nonsense going on in the Ramsey house in the hours after discovering that note, according to a 1999 piece in the Denver Post, quote, there are literally rooms full of physical evidence. As of June 1998, Boulder police had logged 1,058 pieces of evidence, tested 500 pieces of evidence, interviewed 590 people, and logged all their findings in a 30,000-page case file. And then there was Jean Benet's autopsy, which revealed her cause of death to be a combination of suffocation and blunt force trauma to the head. There was also evidence that Jean Benet had been molested. There were abrasions inside her vagina, and Dr. Robert Kirshner from the University of Chicago's pathology department said her vaginal opening was twice the normal size for a six-year-old, suggesting penetration. Though, he added, probably not by a penis, which is evidence that she was likely molested that night and previously. 
Dr. Kirshner, however, wasn't actually involved in the case, as far as I can tell, so this isn't exactly first-hand information. This also highlights again that a lot of people who weren't connected with or involved in the case were reviewing the details and publicly weighing in, which, as far as I'm concerned, is like when your Aunt Linda tries to explain how viruses work based on what she read on Facebook. There was a small amount of blood and some urine in JonBenet's underwear. Side note, can we please stop referring to little girls' underwear as panties? I cannot stand it. But the DNA found on the underwear didn't match anyone in the Ramsey family. Not only that, it apparently didn't match anyone around the Ramseys. It was, and remains to this day, DNA of an unknown person. The garrote used to strangle Jean Benet was made from one of Patsy's paintbrushes, and the three-page note was written on Patsy's own stationery with one of her pens, both of which had been put back where they were found, presumably by whomever used them to write the note. All of this did not look great for the Ramsey's case of innocence. But if John or Patsy had written the note, wouldn't they have at least pretended to go along with its demands? Wouldn't they have not called the police instantly? And who would be stupid enough to put the exact amount of a recent bonus in a ransom note meant to throw off police? I mean, I can understand maybe they wrote it in a panic after having killed their daughter, but if that was the case, would the note have been so thorough and detailed? Wouldn't it have more likely just said something like, we have your daughter, do not contact police, await further instructions? Then again, lies do tend to have too much unnecessary detail. I once had an acting manager who never came to see me in anything live, and his final excuse was that his parents were in town and he had a sty in his eye and his mom had food poisoning. And I was like, dude, pick one. And then I fired him. 74 names were submitted for handwriting samples, and of all those 74 people, only one handwriting sample came close to matching the handwriting in the note. Patsy Ramsey. And even then, based on the handwriting, they could neither definitively confirm nor eliminate her as the author of the note. Also, handwriting analysis is about as useful as so-called blood spatter evidence, which is to say, not very. Anyway, no one has ever figured out what SBTC is. One theory is that it means saved by the cross. Another is that it refers to John's military training at Subic Bay Training Center. For all we know, it could mean seeing butterflies to catch or smelly bullshit target crooks or smooth bongo tapping cats. We just don't know. That said, police also found a partial boot print near Jean Benet's body, and that didn't match any boots in the Ramsey's house or those of friends. And there was the broken window. Not only that, but there were apparently two other basement windows left slightly open to run power cords through for the Christmas lights outside. People who believe the Ramseys were responsible for the murder, or at least the cover-up of someone else's murder of Jean Benet, argue that no one could have fit through the basement windows. But in an interview that Jean Benet's nine-year-old brother Burke gave at the time, at which, remarkably, his parents were not present, 
He explained that his father broke one of the basement windows in order to crawl through and open the door when they were locked out. This will become a super important piece of information later, so tuck it away somewhere safe. But first, two things. One, if you killed or helped cover up the killing of your daughter, do you think you'd allow your nine-year-old to be interviewed without you present? Actually, do you think you'd allow your nine-year-old to be interviewed without you present for any reason? Doubtful. Two, you want me to believe that a nine-year-old colluded with his parents and remembered to offer up this information about the window just to throw off police? Come on. Speaking of Burke, oh boy. Actually, you know what? We do not have time to get into that mess of beans right now. The potential lies, confusion, and misinformation abound. And this is only the beginning of the strange, dark labyrinth of mystery that surrounds Jean Benet's terrible story. When Strange and Unexplained returns, we will delve even deeper into the horrible revelations and infuriating contradictions and a whole bevy of suspects that make up what is arguably the most famous and still unsolved child murder case of the 1990s. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll continue our dive into the Jean Benet murder case and look at the long list of suspects. And my take might surprise you. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Andrea Jones-Sojola, and Jordan Kybernet. We have one more live show, and it's on Sunday, April 23rd in Washington, D.C. To check out tour dates and get your tickets, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com. If you like our show, please do help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. If you don't like our show, you know, no harm, no foul. Don't leave a review. Nobody will mind. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation.